My name is Claire Press, and this is Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shut up. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure of, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. I'm so excited. I finally pinned down my friend Kit Willow to record this fabulous episode for you. Now, you might know that I launched the Australian edition of my book, Wardrobe Crisis, How We Went from Sunday Best to Fast Fashion, at her store in Sydney. And Kit also spoke at the launch of this very podcast. She is an inspiration to me. But I think it's fair to say that Kit inspires everyone in the sustainable fashion world who's ever come across her incredible work. Like Stella McCartney, Kit is leading the way in groundbreaking conversations and ideas in this space. And people are noticing she counts among her fans Emma Watson, the model Carly Kloss, the princess Mary of Denmark. But if you ask Kit if she gets excited or a special thrill from famous women wearing her clothes, she says no. In her mind, all her customers are equal. That's a very Kit thing to say. I would call her fearless and a true original. Her label is built entirely on sustainable production and she's determined just to reinvent the fashion system, but to do it with grace and style. And on that note, make sure you check the show notes and see pictures of her new collection. We recorded this interview over the Christmas break at Kit's house and you can hear the birds singing outside and sometimes the kids playing downstairs. She was preparing for London Fashion Week, which, as I record this speaking to you now, is in full swing. And Kit's there, she's representing Australia in the inaugural Commonwealth Fashion Exchange. That's a new programme that's been set up to showcase the power and potential of artisan fashion skills and deliver new networks and trade links and highlight sustainability internationally. And incidentally, Karen Walker is representing New Zealand. And if you haven't heard her wardrobe crisis interview... I suggest you do. It's fab. But back to this one. Kit and I discuss how designers need to define their positions on sustainability and how the rest of us can then decide how that fits with our own values. So we're asking, what does sustainable and ethical fashion mean to you? For Kit, it's all about materials. As she says, it starts with the field. There's lots to learn in this one and lots to feel excited and hopeful about. I hope you love this interview as much as I do. And as always, dear listener, 
I would be delighted to hear your feedback. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. And if you fancy leaving a rating or review in iTunes, well, that would be just peachy. Kate, what are you wearing? A dress. A dress. <laughs> Please describe for the listener's benefit. <laughs> it is a dress that is actually, the fabric is printed this dot print has been individually knotted, every single dot individually knotted and tied, and then dipped in a sort of turmeric mix dye. Amazing. Yeah. And it's called, what's it called? A bandini. Bandini. Yeah. And where do you have this done? India. Fantastic. We're going to talk about some of the craft behind what you do a little bit later on, but we're recording this in advance, but it's going to come out just after London Fashion Week. You're doing something a bit exciting there, aren't you? Yes. <laughs> you love London, why? Oh, I think it starts with my ancestors because <laughs> they are English. So certainly it just there's a deep-rooted connection to London. And I love the mix between the vintage and the modern and the music in London so cool, you know, all that sort of 80s great music that's still being reinvented today. Um, I think the people are really wonderful. You know, on the train you see everyone's sort of got the newspaper <laughs> open and reading and It's the last passionate. bastion of the broadsheet, actually, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, as you mentioned, that kind of London style is probably quite akin to your approach, right? Because it's a little bit... I mean, you do have that Australian laid-back beauty that we have but I do see a bit of London coolness in what you do it's just I love also their mix between the pretty and the rock and roll that's so London you know the stud with the white lace dress and yeah they're balanced and the punk the punk you know again punk meets with Victorian vintage you know that kind of thing um love so what are you doing so in London so Kid X has been asked to represent Australia at Buckingham Palace as part of a Commonwealth Exchange fashion program. I mean, all I can say is Buckingham Palace. It's cool. When this podcast goes to air, this will have just happened. So you may talk freely about what we are allowed to know. Buck pal, babe. Um, Well, I can't report on exactly what is going to happen there, but um, I've got to design a piece in conjunction with Woolmark, so using Woolmark textiles at one of their suppliers, and it's an evening wear garment which will be on display at Buckingham Palace for this event and then also on display at the London Museum thereafter. And it will also go to the Commonwealth Parliament to discuss ways of working together more collaboratively with the Commonwealth countries to promote artisan support and also sustainability in fashion. Amazing. And are you also not organising some sort of London Fashion Week extravaganza? Yes. So on the Saturday night, there's a gorgeous girl called Rebecca Corbin-Murray who we met in New York and she works very closely with Emma Watson and a number of other actresses and talent and so styles she's a stylist them. she's a stylist and she looks she's the stylist actually in ethical and sustainable fashion she I think. is so she's re- she is because she genuinely she's one of the ones that really does care and knows a lot about it so she's also started um an instagram account called ecoist with a blog and yes she really is passionate about the environment and so it comes from a genuine place and it's been there for a long time. And So she's hosting a um, 
an event in, in a cocktail party during London Fashion Week for KitX. You mentioned her Instagram account. That makes me want to mention Emma Watson's Instagram account, The Press Tour, which is all about spreading awareness of ethical fashion through celebrity and through her red carpet appearances, etc. Emma's worn your stuff. Yep, a few times, yes. How important is it or how useful is it to have the patronage of someone with a big public profile like Emma Watson? Look, I think, I mean, I've always been asked this question and people have said, you know, journalists, oh, wow, how do you feel when, you know, so-and-so wears your garment? And it's sort of like, it doesn't really turn me on. But what, I mean, it's like if anyone, it's like any woman who's enjoying the piece is exciting and, and really rewarding. It's not just because they've necessarily got a profile that it's, makes me happier. But I think in Emma Watson's case, because... What I was so impressed with is the research, every single garment that she wore, a KidX piece, that she had a research team thoroughly examine where every material was from, down to like how it was grown, if it was viscose, where was it, you know, a lensy closed loop system where it's farmed beechwood and you know, like the detail of every single origin of the fabric and the sequin and the zip and we had to provide certificates and it was just so thorough and so amazing and that's why I think I have so much respect for her and so therefore yes it was a big turning point for the brand and a really lovely recognition and certainly commercially it's a very good thing too. I think listeners will be fascinated to hear just how much depth goes into Emma's thinking behind what she's wearing especially in the light of we were talking before we started to record this about greenwashing and the fact that it's very trendy to talk about sustainability right now. It's a lovely hashtag. People love to pick it up and put it down whereas the people who are really making change aren't picking it up and putting it down. They're really running with it and God a lot of cliches but they're really looking deeply into what it means and that's what makes change not just a kind kind of whole load of people jumping on the bandwagon. That's right, yeah. So that's a whole new era that we're going into, which is, look, it's good in a way because it promotes the awareness. I think it's a good thing that more brands are thinking that it's really cool to be sustainable. This is exactly what, you know, when I started KidX, I was like, if brands are inspired and, and actually start to follow suit either follow me or for whatever reason, that's what I see as success. Um, because because it, we need mass uptake. We need mass uptake and it, I, we're not even close yet. So, you know, we've got a long way to go. So if it becomes a bit of a buzzword, then more people may, you know, seriously start taking it on. And then also there's the police, which maybe you're one of them, Claire, um, <laughs> that kind of start to come out and go, oh my God. hang on a minute, what do you mean here? You know, fashion police is like that bad lot of people that sit on the armchair and slag off celebrity red carpet appearances, oh, but right. maybe the future fashion police yeah. is a different yeah. thing altogether, which Sustainability in question. So really, how are you sustainable? Yes. What is this? And the more awareness that... Um, that will be a whole new level, won't it? Because authenticity... Well, you've got to know your stuff if people are going to pin you down. Yeah, if you're going to, you've got to practice what you preach, basically, and, and be genuine and authentic in it. Yeah. I do actually often talk about the fact that on the other side, we also need to foster an environment where people are not scared to take small steps and to say, I want to be more sustainable and I'm trying this and not feel that pressure to be perfect. Because I think that when we do put too much pressure on people to be 100% brilliant, it mm. freaks people out and they don't even dare to take the first steps. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it'll freak people out. I mean, I actually think that 
people start to really want to know their stuff, which is good. I mean, design is all about more than just the visuals of the garment that you're putting out into the world. It's all about the back story of how you get it made anyway, isn't it? I mean, most designers do want to know how to make things in the best way and how to figure out or solve the problem of creating something from a drawing. Mm. It kind of is design, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what? Well, supply chains and working out how you're going to do the best job about making something. I think it was all part of the same puzzle. I mean, for me, it's actually... um, Because there's so much choice in materials and everything. So it's much more um, focused, which is actually a kind of easier design process. And I can just wipe out, you know, half of the textile collection that I'm looking at because it's got polyester in it or... You know, it doesn't have a good composition or there's no certification about its origin or, you know, so then you start to work with less options and therefore... Less is more? Less is more and actually um, it's more empowering. And also the fabrics that we have been working with that have got the really, like, positive impact fabrics are the ones that are at retail actually doing well. And it's not that the customer knows that. I just think... There's a sense, there's a feeling about wanting that raw beauty or or even it can be a polished beauty or it could be a, a hand-woven textile by artisans. It carries the magic with it. We've talked before about how you don't think it's the customer's job to know all about the backstory of this stuff. Mm. That's your job. Mm, that's they just my need job. to be seduced by how lovely it is. And they are. They're actually naturally just going for the pieces that are the hand-woven textiles and that are the you know linen crush and the ones that have positive impact are the, actually the fabrics that are really flying out the door, which I'm loving as well. The fact, and they wouldn't even know that, but there's some kind of extra layer of magic kind of attracting them to it. Which and is maybe that handwork thing does contain its own magic. Cause it I does. Think, you know, absolutely. you do feel it. You feel it when you look it, at that dress. It absolutely does. Like right now we've got Bandini again because I wanted to build the women, uh, their workshop, and there's 260 of them all gathering around. They've pulled all these women from all these different villages to get the production done in such a short period of time. And, you know, it's that kind of empowerment of women as well in communities and they're all banding together to get that KidEx production out and be so proud of the work that they're creating. Since you raised that, I'm going to have to jump on it and say, can you share the story of how that wasn't as easy as it could have been when you first yeah. began? So you worked with Artisans of Fashion. Yep, and which still is... continue to. But the first season we did the Bandini with them, we sold, I think it was like 3,500 metres of fabric of the Bandini and we couldn't get it done because it was across three colours and the production lead times are such that... Because it's a slow process. It's a slow... This handwork is slow, but the production system of fashion doesn't allow that. And so, you know, we have big stores demanding, on you know, deliveries quickly and everything. And we had to make sure that we delivered on time. And to do that, we had to break it down so that we had one colour that they did do and the two other colours we had to get digitally printed. And the one colour that they did do is the colour actually that flew out the door the fastest, which is an interesting... Is it the red one? The green. Oh, the green one. So the one that I'm doing now that's about to deliver, all three colours, they were able to do because we indented the fabric two months earlier. I love this story because it spreads awareness of how complex these processes are. You can't simply... 
attack slow fashion in the same way that we used to fast fashion. They're different processes. Mm, mm. And I guess there's a bit of tension around how the system works and what people expect in terms of deliveries and how slow production of craft-based textiles works. They're not necessarily an obvious fit, so you've got to figure it out, right? Yeah. But you can because you did. You can, and the, the way we did it was we, we had to punt and we, we indented, we bought a couple of thousand metres of fabric early on and they started knotting straight away. And then the dye breakdown we gave them once the orders were finalised. So we gave them, you know, an extra two months longer. But we couldn't have done that with the original, you know, without that planning ahead. But it's also about going back and repeat business, isn't it? And it's exactly, exactly, because we didn't want to just leave them in the lurch. So I'll pick up Bandini. We've left it for this season, but we'll pick it up again next season. Okay, let's rewind. Tell us the story of beginning Kit X. So basically... um, I had a label called Willow and I've always been interested in sustainability and, you know, saving the planet and doing it in ways that I thought were productive. However, um, I met a man called Johan Johan Zeitz, who is um, the chairman of sustainability at Kering, but he's also, he invented the environmental PL at Puma. And he said that um, 70% of the cost of the PL came from materials and this is just before the whole willow explosion happened and I, and I lost that child and I was like oh my god that's incredible and I just it was like a light bulb moment I was like right that's it I'm going to make sure that willow and if it's not willow it's my next project um consciously sources materials to limit the impact on the planet because that's where the greatest cost is because it's very hard to say okay I'm sustainable but you've also got to define your position on sustainability And that's where I think what will be happening in the future is brands actually being transparent about their position on sustainability. And then consumers need to assess whether or not that's within their ethical sort of ethos. That's so interesting, Kit, because I think often we can get really overwhelmed by the broadness of the umbrella term of sustainable Mm, or responsible or ethical fashion. Like, what on earth does it mean could mean anything? Yes, that's right. And so by locking down that... Yes. aspect of it for you and saying fabric has such a big impact you're really that's defining my it. thing I'm really defining it because materials are the greatest impact and most of it starts at the dirt level I'm focusing on consciously sourcing materials to limit the impact on the planet and to also um, maximize impact on humanity through working with artisans so really defining the uh, position on sustainability through consciously sourcing materials. And then consumers can read that and go, you know what, that, that sounds good, that, I like that, and therefore that's within my moral code. Other customers might read it and go, you know what, I think that um, I would prefer, much prefer Kit not to be using any petrol in her distribution and, you know... You know, I don't know. Yeah. It's like you've got to define it within. But yeah. I, for me, it's hard to win on every level and how far do you go? And it's about sort of looking at the big things and the big thing on the planet is, is materials and is labour and humans. So I've known about your work for many, many years. I was at your first ever show for Willow with oh all the amazing God. corseted lingerie and yes. beautiful bras and bustiers yes. at Fashion Week. Yes. It was fab. But it was a really long time ago. I mean, how long ago was that? 15 years. Well, um, that was May 2003. Right. Yeah. I was right, 15 years. I know. So obviously I've known you for years, I've watched your career and loved your work all that time. But the moment when I understood and realised how powerful and incredible Kit X was, 
was through materials and storytelling and you telling me that you were using buttons that had been made through discarded bullet cases yes. that had been found in, was it Cambodia? In Cambodia, yeah. And just the story of that. Oh, I mean, no. amazing. amazing. So you've got, you've got upcycling, you've got using something that has a very, very emotional story attached to it. Mm, mm. And that delivers a really big bang of a message, doesn't it? And then if you combine that with then the organic cotton story and the other, I think at the time, I don't know, were you using upcycled polyester at that time? Not sure. Yes, I've been using um, lycra that's come from um, removing discarded fishing nets out of the ocean and marine litter and then knitting that into a jersey in Italy using solar power and a fully closed loop system so there's no effluence and... Um, and this was from the very first collection for Kit X. This is for the very first. So from when? the first collection. So we launched Kit X. Um, so from August this year, it's been in the stores for two years. So, so two and a half years. Yeah. And how do you define that word, or what does Kit X mean? What's your mission yeah, statement? Yeah, so my thing, so I was like Kit for Kit Willow and then X being, um, well, actually I created this symbol where the X was perfect for it because it was like the mirror to the K and then it became very stable and strong. Ah. Um, X is also 10, which is, I had Willow for 10 years and then X and then also um, female chromosome. Kit X, Kit is K for kindness, I for integrity and T for transparency. I knew there was a story. I forgot yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, right. So, yeah, that's... Um, that's fascinating though because it speaks of you having values at the very core of what you're trying to do with this new venture. It's mm. not ha- There's nothing haphazard about it. Everything is about, okay, this is the mission, this is what I'm trying to do. Yeah. It's beyond just lovely looking clothes. That's right. And, it you know, we've got to create lovely looking clothes, beautiful, you know close it high frequency wear and it's got to have that mm, desirability it has to at the end of the day if it doesn't have that the business won't survive so that's key and, and front and foremost otherwise you know we can't keep the lights on but in parallel to that is this value system um which is core to the brand of how we deal with suppliers how we deal with each other internally how we yeah, it's, it's how we speak to the outside world and operate. Talking of speaking to the outside world, you took Resort 18, which was the most recent collection that I've seen, to New York. Yep. How were reactions there amongst editors and buyers and the fashion community? Yeah, so we did a, um, an event at the Crosby Hotel and a breakfast, like a sort of over, it was like 30 appointments over two hours. God. Um, and I had no voice. <laughs> I lost my voice. I remember that. I went Miming, da- just dancing <laughs> two nights before, way too long. And, um, <laughs> got a bit carried away in New York. Anyway, that was great. Um, no voice with 30 media appointments. But, um, but I read stories that were full of glowing praise, so it didn't matter that you couldn't yeah. talk because your clothes talked. Well, I whispered hard. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, they're very um, aware. And we had, it was so interesting because I've been doing press drawings, you know, in New York and London and Paris for a long time. And with Willow, and what's so lovely about doing them with Kid X is all these really intelligent sort of left-wing journalists are just so passionate, you know, about talking about sustainability in the Paris, you know, accord agreement, like um, Trump had just pulled out of the Paris uh, accord agreement. And they're so politically 
driven and aware and, and so am I and so we were having these really um, intelligent discussions rather than just about oh my god that dress is so pretty um, actually though it's funny that you mentioned the political context because that feeling of we must resist Trumpism and oh, the, its impacts on the environment is definitely oh, very motivating isn't it it really is and I mean he couldn't be just representing everything in the world that is more wrong right this this man and it's almost inciting this kind of so much more about what is right, which is what we need. I'm we need writing this. a book about this right we, now. Yeah, <laughs> right. We just need this huge uprising because we're actually not going to survive. And this beautiful world and nature and animals and biodiversity in plant life and in animal life also is being totally just raped at the moment and so and we all need well they don't need us but we need them but um with nature we do need nature nature doesn't actually need us so we need to recognize that we're part of it as opposed to trying to lord it over it that's right we are part of it we need each other so we need to help they don't need us actually we need nature we need to respect her on this planet and it is just in this incredibly short period of time of civilization and planet earth we have done you know irreparable damage and this thinking needs to change as a person working within the fashion industry which is often charged with being superficial and surface driven but more importantly is rightly accused of being part of the problem of decimating natural environments and polluting and gobbling up resources and being wasteful. How do you think that we can use fashion's power to change these conversations? And I guess I'm thinking about its great popularity and, you know, the fact that it's a big beast makes it powerful, doesn't it? People look at what we do. I mean, on all sorts of levels, fashion is meant to sort of be leading, but in this respect, we've been actually lagging. Um, on the sustainability front, food is much more in the lead than fashion. And fashion is so human intensive, as is food, because it starts with agriculture and dirt and farmers and land. All the fabric that we wear starts there, except for synthetic fabrics, which start with petroleum. It gives off nitrous oxide, which is five times more toxic than carbon dioxide. So the man-made fibres are really, really bad. And hang around in the environment for goodness knows how many years. And never break down, but they can be upcycled if they're 100%, which is almost like all the future textiles of the world need to come from the past. That's where it is. Like, let's use the resources that we've already got and just keep circulating them rather than dumping them and like all the plastic in the ocean, you know, could create all the new plastic that we'd need in the world for a lifetime, many lifetimes to come. So the power of fashion really starts with how many people are touching it at every single point. So if we aren't at every point, if we are not sourcing consciously and making sure that every stakeholder at every point is doing the right thing on a fair living wage conditions as well as, you know, planet impact then its impact's enormous how many hands touch it at every single point so i've forgotten that number but i feel like it's something like the average garment has been touched by 80 pairs of hands yeah no it's a lot it's absolutely it's a lot but actually when you come back to that sort of visceral thing which is that it's human Mm. 
I mean, I've said this before on this podcast, but that essentially the production of fashion comes down to a woman sewing in a room. It really does. Mm. And when you, you sort of strip away all the bells and whistles and all the fuss and fandangos and fashion week and all That's that. That's right. What you've really got is a woman sewing in a room, mm. maybe lots of women sewing in an unventilated room. Mm. But really it's human it's human, human effort. It's human effort. That's right. It really is. It's human effort. And that, when we talked about how your customers appreciate the feeling of fabric, I think that comes down to that too, that if it has been made with love. I know that sounds a bit airy-fairy, but I think it's true. It does sound airy-fairy, but it actually, it's true. It's working. That's what I'm kind of really loving, the fact that it's actually the fabrics and it's being reinforced every season. The fabrics that are hand-woven and the fabric, yeah, definitely, the customer just loves it. Tell me about hemp. So hemp is very, very good. We're using a lot more hemp and we've got a jersey collection coming out um, next season, which is all hemp. Because hemp has a bad name. The hairy hemp connotations persist. Yeah, I know. We need to change that. I mean, there's some amazing organisations like Hemp Vortex, which are knitting and weaving a lot of hemp with silk and help with hemp with organic cotton and there's big leaps in in innovation with getting a much softer feel so Um, why is it good why is it good so hemp firstly and again everything starts with dirt is that hemp doesn't attract insects so there's no no insecticides or pesticides that are required to grow hemp so that's number one number two it doesn't it requires very little water Number three, it binds the soil when it grows, so it's very, very good for the land. And number four, it grows very quickly. So it can be recropped and recropped and recropped on the same size land. So that, you know, they sort of say if hemp could replace cotton, we're in a much better position. You also use and have used from the get go organic cotton. Yes. Why is that important so to you? So cotton leads to 20% of the world's water pollution. It attracts a lot of insects. I mean, cotton is a beautiful fibre, okay? It's but really we have this idea that it's natural when, in fact, the way that it's conventionally grown is far from it. That's right. So it will break down, which is one good aspect. But if it's not organic, what it means is that insecticides and pesticides have been used, very toxic chemicals in, in cropping. There's also the genetically modified seed, which is used, which provides no new seedling at the end. Um, Um, I will share in the show notes a link to a chapter in Wardrobe Crisis, but also some of the papers that it references about Monsanto's stranglehold with GM cotton in India, because it's quite complicated and convoluted, but it's it's really interesting. mm. And it makes you really want to get the alternatives when you know that stuff. No, that's right. It's... um, so basically genetically modified seeds and the chemicals together not only contaminate the land, which apparently takes 10 years to be free of any of those chemicals, the company Monsanto increased the prices, so the farm, their crops are then hooked on, this, on the chemicals and genetically modified seeds. They've lost their natural cotton seed um, and they certainly can't grow them organically after that. You know, one farmer drinks a bottle of of the insecticides or pesticides every half an hour. Really? Yeah, and dies. You have a few drops on your lip and you die of these insecticides and pesticides. So basically they are winning the shareholders. Very few people in that company financially are winning and benefiting greatly, while huge numbers of other humans 
are incredibly disadvantaged to the point of suicide and cancer death. And that's where cotton, that's the industry right now. And if it's organic cotton, it means that it's a natural cotton seed and it also means that no insecticides or pesticides are used on the crops. And the way to keep the insects away is through biodiversity. So growing apple orchards next to the cotton crops and vegetables and then the insects all attract each other and they eat each other and the, the crops are protected and left untouched. And then the community's health is benefited, the land, you know, there's no contamination, the health of the workers is good and then the planet is also good and that's that philosophy of the win-win and that's where again kidex just coming back to that win-win philosophy the opposite of monsanto's the opposite of monsanto and the opposite of the donald trump thinking i know i was just thinking as you were it's talking the same about thing it's like there are two we, different yeah. we're reaching i think a tipping point where people mm. are fed up with mm. a very very small number of people controlling all of the wealth and benefiting in society and benefiting while the poor get poorer and the middle class stagnate too. I mean, what we've been sold a lie, really, haven't we? That we can all have exponential growth and get richer and richer. That's not happening. Well, also capitalism. I mean, who knows? You know, the, the sort of pure capitalist model that is, you know, America, is failing. It's failing dismally. It's such a thorny discussion topic to be bringing up on a fashion podcast and I raised it recently last season with Richard Dennis who wrote a book called Curing Affluenza about basically how capitalism as we know it and consumerism has gone out of control and that we need to look at reshaping the economy. Mm. Whether or not that's going to happen I don't know but it's hard for us to discuss those big macro ideas when we're in the business of selling things. But at the same time, I think that we have to be open to those discussions because we do need to reshape the way that we not, do business. Yeah, and it's not about stopping selling things and or being successful. It's just about, you know, it's that inclusive capitalism mentality where it's inclusive, where others win. Well, we probably you need know, new words for it. I mean, I suppose I feel like of... it's inclusive capitalism. It's, it's workers winning because they're being paid fair living wages. It's workers winning because they're not you know, dealing with toxic chemicals and farmers winning because their land is not contaminated and they're not, you know, sort of held ransom to price increases that they can't get out of. And, yeah, it's that thing of, like, all stakeholders ensuring that they're also benefiting. And that's how nature works and it's how a forest works. It's like if one tree is sick, you know, always Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. And the forest system, the true forest system works where if one tree gets ill, they shoot nutrients through their root systems to the sick tree so that it gets stronger because a, survive, a really healthy forest is a forest where there is thriving biodiversity, right? And where the ecosystem all works symbiotically. They help each other. If a giraffe comes along and starts nibbling on a particular species of leaf, right, that tree will recognise that the giraffe is eating it and shoot out a distasteful chemical that the giraffe doesn't like, right? So he'll move on. But not only that, they also spread out through their root systems the message to all their other same species to say the giraffes are coming, (laughs) Shoot out what have you nutri- been reading? Shoot out this chemical. And then, so basically giraffes know that with a 300-metre radius, they don't even nibble the same tree again. They have to move out 300 metres to find another tree to nibble. Do you have a reading list you can recommend? What have you been reading? 
The Hidden Life of Trees. Ah, that's um, I can't remember his name, but that's uh, a forest guy, a um, German guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. We are going to look that up and share yeah. it in the show notes. Yes. <laughs> and while we're on the subject of reading lists, I would love to share this book that I've been reading, which is George Monbiot's book, Feral. It is fascinating. It's about what might happen if we rewilded vast tracts of land. And it talks about, oh, you know, there are actually people doing it. People have bought bits of Scotland and left it to nature to take oh, yeah. over. Yeah, fabulous. Yeah. Oh, and more what of if that. we what if we reintroduced wolves into Yosemite? Well, there's a big thing about wolves as well. Yeah, I mean, that highlights the need for biodiversity because if one species... Keystone species that basically have these effects that trickle down into the the whole system. The whole thing will... And it's what's happening, you know, under the ocean right now as well. We're actually recording this interview in Kit's house in Sydney, which overlooks the harbour. You might be able to hear the birds. You can certainly see, if you are here, you can't see, we can see a canopy of beautiful trees and then the sparkling blue water. And it does remind you, especially when you hear the birds, that nature's all around us and it's so important and that at our peril do we ignore this stuff, you know? I know, I need, this is why I come home to this and I'm like, oh my God, I just need, wherever I am in life, yeah, it's just good. I just need to have that nature. Tell me about design. Is that part of that for you? Yeah, I mean, I'm constantly inspired by nature and yeah, definitely, yeah. Biodiversity, the new collection is all um, about and inspired by. Is it? Yeah, mixing and, comp- you know, mixing different hand-woven textiles with machine-woven textiles with hand-painted textiles with, you know, from all different parts of the world and artisans and, yeah, but keeping it clean and modern. Yeah, biodiversity. Downstairs is your daughter with her friend. How has having kids and being a mum affected your thinking about this stuff, about sustainability and about what kind of legacy you want to leave in the world? I mean, I certainly, I don't think of it from, as a selfish point of view for my own children. I, I deeply, deeply respect and just honour nature and the planet that we live on. And however, also for my daughter she's got a slime stall actually next week and a what a slime stall and I was like we're not selling the slime in plastic containers and it's caused a little bit of a thing with her friend who was like no we'll make more money if we sell it in plastic containers her friend well otherwise you've got to dole it out with a spoon yeah and I'm <laughs> no, no and I'm like no we're not doing plastic containers we have to do glass I'm sorry there's you know 60 billion tons of plastic in the ocean every year I'm not there's no way that we're adding to it and it became this thing at Missy's school where you know, Missy's mum forced Missy and her friend to do glass not plastic I love I, it I'm like oh my god these girls need to like, they need to they're the next the generation <laughs> what is going on here if you're gonna sell slime yeah, don't sell it in plastic yeah I want you guys to be like no do plastic <laughs> but um yeah so certainly it's so much bigger than my own children. So I honestly don't think that um, that it's just them. But I do, yeah, it's, it's not. It's so much bigger than that, certainly. I, I don't just think, think of it for that reason. I think of it for all children on the planet and we're leaving them a big mess. And 
But it is lovely that you bring it back to slime and the stall because the little things can make change and actually it can come down to something as simple as mums on the school run talking about this stuff, people in shops asking for this stuff. People at grassroots levels can make community change. Absolutely. And I think my head's in this space now because I'm writing this book about no, it. No, it's very important. I think important. really we Grass shouldn't roots. underestimate the no. little things, right? Every single shop I go to that offers a plastic bag, I'm like... No, I will not have that plastic bag because there are 60 billion tonnes of plastic in the ocean that is dumped every single year. Do you really think that that takes 1,000 years to break down? And since we've been making plastic, not one plastic particle has broken down yet. Do you really think I need to have a plastic bag to go home? Why are you not serving options in upcycled paper bags? And they just look at me and go... Oh, God, it's Kit. <laughs> but I'm like, you've got to do it because it just, like, if the light, one person, a light, you know, globe moment goes off for them, then, you know, there might be 600 shots that all of a sudden go to paper bags, you know. So I am that woman in the supermarket yeah, too. I know. And Australia is so slow. And in Paris, there's no plastic bags in supermarkets. They don't, they don't give you plastic bags. Everyone takes their own wheelies and loads up their food. Even at the fruit sections, there's no plastic bags to put your fruit in. Everything, there's no plastic. And if you don't have a wheelie or your own bag, you have to pay for a very well-made, heavy, strong brown paper bag. It's cultural change, isn't it? And as soon as it becomes the norm. And it's like that in Paris, and it's everywhere like that in London. Why is Australia so slow? And we're surrounded by ocean, and where you, you just pumping out plastic bags. The UN actually, just before Christmas, signed a heads-up agreement with many nations, including China, to try to tackle this plastic bag problem and plastic packaging problem. I do think we're going to see some laws that are going to come Mm. in internationally that are going to govern this stuff. Yeah, I hope so. That's what we need to see. We need to. All right, Kit. I think that we should end this conversation with a call to arms. (laughs) Why not? <laughs> a call to arms? Yeah, I was like, okay, should we tell everyone? I did a podcast last year with someone called Alex Stewart. I was her guest and she has a fantastic show which is called Low Tox Life and she's writing a book about it and she's awesome. And she's always telling everyone on her show, okay, this is your takeaway, go do it. And she said when we were talking about plastic, she said, okay, everyone, I want you to go into supermarkets this week and try and say, could I suggest that you don't package your avocados in polystyrene trays? Yeah. Hello. So I think we should have a bit of a go-do moment. What can it be? Something we can all do. Obviously, if you've got a slime stall. What could it be? I, my, my call to action is not so much fashion-related because it's a bit trickier there, but um, I do think that this plastic scenario is, you know, my call to action out to everybody is I'm sure we've all got cotton bags at home or one of those keep supermarket bags or a box Fill your car with them, fill your boot with them and the next time you go to the supermarket, bring them out of the boot and do not use any new plastic. Just use the boxes or cotton bags or keep supermarket bag to fill your shopping and it's um, pre-preparing, isn't it? Because when we resort to plastic, it's because we forgot the bags. That's right. But if they're in the boot of your car or if they're always in your handbag. So I put them at the front door. Every time after a shop, I, put, I leave them at the front door so that I then, on the way out, you know, put them back into the car. But it, we've, we've just got to... We just have to. We've got to do it. Mm, let's all do that. 
Yeah. And shop at KX. Yeah. Of course. Well, I hope, yeah, enjoy, enjoy. And yes, exactly. Thank you, Kit. Thank you. That is the Kit. end. Let's change the world. Woo-hoo. One T-shirt at a time. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you